0: Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 145. And we're staying alive, staying alive. Uh, 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 uh. Happy New Year. Oh, Lord.
1: How was your Christmas? We don't know how ours was because we're recording it early because, well, Will's going on vacay and, well, oh, excuse me, holiday. <laughs> Will's going on holiday. So we're trying <laughs> to get on top of things. I mean, yeah, always somebody's got to keep us organized and its will.
0: Definitely. Do you prefer wrapped gifts or bad gifts? I don't care. Really? Yeah, I don't care. Probably bad gifts because everyone- Oh my god, you take for fucking ever unwrapping gifts. Right there,
1: people. Right there is why I like bad gifts. She's gotten so much better, y'all, but she used to like
0: meticulously take off Every inch of fucking tape. I'm sorry that I want to preserve the pretty wrapping and not just be an animal about it. And do what with it, Donna? I don't know. Like, you worked hard on wrapping it, so I just didn't want to be like, and this is garbage.
1: And then what? Do what with it? Throw it away?
0: Yes, I throw it away. I don't throw it in the floor. I don't do anything. I have a bag that I put all my stuff in.
1: Well, as does everyone else. I love unwrapping presents. Also, it does freak me out a little bit because I'm so scared I'm going to hate it, and I don't have a poker face.
0: We have several stories where she's hated my gifts. We
1: have one story where I've not loved the. Oh, concept. she hated
0: she hated it, and also I was like, remember back when we were at this party, and you were like, oh my god, if they just had a thing with a wine no, glass, never said that. Yes, you did. You were. I'm sorry. She was like, oh my God, I would drink wine if there was something that I, I wouldn't spill it all the time because there was nothing to hold it on. And we all know she's Wreck-It Ralph over there and she spills a lot. And I saw That's this, when I was trying to be bougie. And I saw this on fucking Etsy. This is a while ago. This is when it like came out, those wine glasses in a tumbler and a monogrammed it. And I was like, oh, like I remembered this. This is so thoughtful. So I got myself one also because... I also spill things, or I'm next to Carrie, and she spills my shit. True story. But I got Tiffany to get it for me, like, because we all exchange gifts, so I was like, hey, this is a gift you can get me. Well, instead of opening at the same time, I opened mine first, and Carrie, take it from here. Well, I just might have um, interjected
1: a colorful opinion about how that was a lot of unused space in the cup and that it might have been more beneficial to use the whole cup to be able to hold liquids instead of putting a wine glass inside of said cup
0: mm-hmm. basically like it's dumb Then I was like I might have said that word I was like well
1: open yours um <laughs>
0: And then I was like, remember this? And she was like, no, I don't remember that at all. I wasn't that big of an asshole. I was like, no, I don't remember it. I'm so sorry. I do like it. I did. Uh, then she's going to lie. <laughs> don't lie. You ain't got to lie, Craig. <laughs> I'm like, fuck. Because again, she ain't got no poker face. I'm sorry. 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 <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that's what happens when you have very strong opinions because they to bite you in the ass. Also, it happened this year. <laughs> no, it did not. Yes, it did.
1: <laughs> you said that I you I, I picked out the one that you picked out for me, and that's the one that I picked out. But I picked them out. I said, they suck. Except for
0: the one that I picked I, out no, that I like. No, you did say except you said... These are stupid. Heck yes. Like mo- like mocked the thing while we walked by. And I was like. But that's not the one you got me. No. But I was like, well, I have to uh, say something. Uh One of those things I might have got you on that shelf. And she was like, oh, shit. Was it the heck yes? And I was like, no. And then she picked it out because it's something she says all the
1: fucking time. And that one. Okay. When we went to that shelf, that is literally the one that I picked out from like. Because it was like an end cap at Target. And it was literally like the sixth shelf down. And I picked it up from that bottom shelf and put it eye level because I liked that one. Mm-hmm. Did I not, though? You did. Which would indicate
0: that. Yeah, but did you... That would indicate that. You need to look closer because you have to wear glasses now. Because I... Am old. Because I... Had a birthday. Uh, <laughs> liked it. Kind of. But then we didn't get it because she didn't like it that much. She didn't think it was that cool. Because I was looking at it for somebody else. Uh-huh. But was, it was so funny. She was like, oh, shit. Was it the heck yes? <laughs> <laughs> but one, no. Because that is not Carrie at all. <laughs> never, never, never. I mean, first of all, am I,
1: Napoleon Donnelly, would never would I be like, hey, yes. But Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was like, well, I mean, that wasn't like her main gift. It was literally, I just bought Marley something, and across the way, it was at NCAP, and I was like, oh, shit, that's Carrie 100. I'm just going to get this as a little happy. <laughs> and then open mouth,
1: insert foot.
0: Mm-hmm. But literally, I was like, this is something she can lose in her car, because it's like a water container and a water container. <laughs> what am I, going camping on Parent Trap? <laughs> It's what it, what would it be? It's like um, a an, water bottle. Yeah, but it's like a knockoff uh, sickle kind of thing. But yeah, she would use that. It's got a lid on it and it'll go in the back of her truck. I feel like she fucking knows me. Mm hmm. You
1: know who else knows me? Pedro Looking at you, Mercedes H from
0: Indiana, Hunter L from Canada, Ishelle J from California, Brittany M from Massachusetts, Chrissy J from Oregon. Norma U from Nevada, Sarah D. from Texas, and Leah B. from Indiana. Thank y'all so much for your support. We hope that you enjoy all of the bonus content. And if you want to shout out in the new year, get on over to www.patreon.com forward slash the APC podcast. No pressure, but this is your final story of the year of 2020.
1: Well, it's going to be shit just like the rest of the year.
0: Damn. Get ready, y'all. Get your popcorn.
1: Okay, so this is a story all about how <laughs> down at the bayou got turned all upside down. <laughs> but for real, though. Okay, we're heading down south, souther than south than we are right now, down to the bayou in Louisiana. We're going to talk about this serial killer that I had never heard of. Not that that means that I know all the things, but it's kind of interesting that I'd never heard of him because of how close he was. This serial killer that was dubbed many different names, one, the Blue Bayou Strangler, the Bayou Strangler, just to name a couple, killed 23 men from July 1997 to October 2006. This is, I feel like, pretty recent. Recent enough, that we would be old enough that we would at least remember the capture. Right?
0: You'd think. You would think. I was still in college. That was probably me going, should I change my major because I don't want to do this anymore? Or should I just go through with it? And you were doing probably the same thing. Literally the
1: same thing. (laughs) For the 800 billionth time, (laughs) which is why I was 9,000 years old when I got out of college. And mm, multiply that to the nth time. That's not even a number, but that's how much student loan debt I have.
0: (laughs) Well, damn, I want to know his name so I can be like, oh, yeah, I do know this.
1: So, really, with this case, there's not a whole lot that I could find. And I listened to some podcasts, and they had some details around a few of the men But not a whole lot. And there are 23 men who were murdered. You'd think that there would be at least a little bit more information about how they died, their lives, something that was available. But I think the telltale on why this case, although it has some podcasts about it, there is a documentary on Amazon Prime called Bayou Blue, which I watched, which is pretty good. But even that had more interviews versus details of the crime. It was more like interviewing family, interviewing the police officers. But it wasn't like a investigative—I don't know. It, it just wasn't what I was expecting. It was good. It was a good documentary, but it wasn't like an investigation discovery type of look into the case, if that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah. But there was this one detail— that one of the reporters that was in that documentary said that when they finally broke this case and they found out who the serial killer was, when they took that information to the New York Times and they said, we have your breaking story for tomorrow. We just broke this serial killer down here. Here's the information. 23 homicides over you know a 10-year span. We, here is the serial killer. And the New York Times says, that's a local story.
0: Oh, shit.
1: And now, again, it's gaining more traction. But I feel like even then, all the podcasts, all the information's the same. And honestly, I'm not going to do much different. I feel like I'm going to kind of do the same, regurgitate the same information from the same articles, from the same. I don't have really anything new to offer you because I can't find it. But I will tell you the story of how the man who appeared to be mild-mannered, who moonlit as a Patty LaBelle impersonator, became one of the most prolific serial killers in Southeast Louisiana.
0: Wow. There
1: were a couple articles that I got some good information from. Um, one was by Charles Montaldo and one by Katie Serena. But anyway, okay, so... I've spilled the beans. We know who he is, so let's talk about him a little bit. His name is Ronald Dominique. He grew up in Thibodeau, Louisiana, which is kind of in between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, and it has a small-town feel, and when he was in high school, he did the glee club, did the choir thing. Even though he wasn't out as being gay, people definitely assumed that he was gay, And he was definitely ridiculed for it. Because around, let's say, 2006, he was, I think, 41, so... So he'd probably been in high school in the maybe late 70s, early 80s. Again, not that the year makes it right to tease somebody for anything, but it just kind of paints a picture. Even as he grew up, though, he still had a hard time kind of finding his place. He didn't feel like he was really accepted by the gay community because... Even the people when he would go out to the gay clubs just felt like he was weird and they, he just made them uncomfortable. They just got a vibe off of him. They could tell that it was like people just knew he kind of was a bad guy. Like, he didn't outwardly appear it, but I mean, maybe they were just really good judges of character because clearly they
0: were right. Yeah. Well, honestly, at that time they had to be. Exactly. Their life depended on it. Literally. Yeah. Cause uh, that other guy you did, he didn't look like he could hurt anyone either. He was a Herb Bowmeister, mm-hmm. and he preyed on same population. Mm-hmm. Well, Dominique was like five five,
1: overweight, very soft spoken, so people just kind of underestimated him. Just thought like, oh okay, you know he's he's nothing kind of thing. Also though. He did things in the community. Like, he would call out numbers at the bingo hall for senior citizens and stuff. So, he, he did have some things. I don't know. I guess nobody's all bad, you know?
0: God, does this guy just, like, pick and choose from all your people? I mean, you haven't covered John Wayne Gacy, but he's giving me that kind of vibe on that. Mm-hmm. But he does have a
1: bit of a criminal history. In 1985, he was arrested and charged with telephone harassment. He pled guilty and had to pay a fine and court costs. Guess how much the fine was? $13. Good guess. $74. But that just was interesting to me. I couldn't really find, like, who he harassed, what it was about. But it just kind of shows, like, you'll kind of see something else later where I was like, I don't know. Like, when he gets something in his head, like, he ain't letting it go. You know, Donna?
0: I had to look away. I was like, I feel attacked. No, no, no. but you you
1: know what I mean? Like, he's... He's going to keep going with someone until he gets what he wants. Yeah. In 94, he got a a DWI. And then in 1996, that's when everything changed. One day, this young black man is partially dressed. So let's just call it what it is halfway naked, crawls out of Dominique's window. And is screaming that Dominique tried to kill him. So at first, it was like the neighbors were like, oh, that's just some like gay sex thing. Of course. Of course. Whatever. But then they were like, oh. Oh, okay. No, this is bad. And so Dominique was arrested and charged with forcible rape. And he was booked on a $100,000 bond. So he was kept at the county jail until he was bonded out. Well, nothing ever came of it because they couldn't find the victim. Like once it all like shit went down, time to go to trial, they couldn't find him to testify. And then just two months later, the judge was like, All right, dismissed it indefinitely. Wow. So they really clearly looked very hard for a very long time right. for that victim. I mean, uh, I mean, two whole fucking months. Right. I can't do that math. Three
0: whole fucking months. <laughs> right. And, of course, that victim is going to be hard to find because of the matter of it and uh-huh. them being gay and everything mm-hmm. else. Like, of course. Well,
1: just that little stint in jail changed everything for Ronald Dominique. He was like, I cannot go back to jail no more raping. It's got to be rape and murder. Lovely. I mean, you know, you can't just stop. I mean, that would be reasonable.
0: Oh my God. He really is like all these serial killers rolled into one. That gives me Ed Kemper vibes because when he went to the psychiatric thing and he learned all of this shit mm-hmm. and learned like basically how to. Yeah, you can't let them live because uh-huh. then they can testify against you. Oh my gosh.
1: This is, like, in the midst of everything, but February 10th, 2002, he was arrested in Terrebonne Parish because he was at a Mardi Gras parade, and allegedly, this woman hit a baby in a stroller in this parking lot, and he, like, flipped his lid, and she apologized, but he was like, fuck no, you're an asshole, I assume. I don't know what he said to her, but he, like, cusses her out, and then he slaps her, and... So, he was arrested for that.
0: Okay, I have so many emotions about that because here's my thing. I thought at first it was like, pow, 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 a slap. And then you said in a parking lot. And so, then I was like, oh, fuck. She went vroom, vroom, vroom. And then you said he hit her. And so, now it's back to pow, pow, pow? No, like it's like slap in
1: the face. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like Yeah, they slap in each other. Okay. Nobody pows when they slap. That's a punch. I know, but like in... I mean, I don't even read comics, and I know it's slap
0: and pow. Well, slap is not a thing. Oh, it would say slap. <laughs> <laughs> but we all know I can't do sound effects, okay? <laughs> Try. No. <laughs> Try. Come on. Do it again. Why? Pop goes the weasel. <laughs> Why can't I do it? I
1: don't know. Okay, anyway. I don't know that just, I don't know why that would make me be like, I mean, they all have their limits, but it was like, but even that though, like a girl should not have slapped a fucking baby in a fucking stroller. No. But even that she's like, okay, apologize, like move on. And he just could not let it go. Yeah. You know, that whole situation was fucked up. There was no right or wrong or way out of that whole fucking thing is wrong. Yeah, so many wrong things happening right there. But again, it was just it was it reminded me of the telephone harassment yeah. where it was just like like a fucking dog with a bone. Like let it fucking go. Yeah. You
0: know? Also, y'all y'all let me know if y'all had that emotional roller coaster of oh he someone slapped someone and then she said in a parking lot and then you're like oh because she said hit. Oh. You said, she hit a baby. Well, you can't see the words that are in yeah. my head. <laughs> you and said, I want
1: you to be able to read the uh-huh. words that are in my head. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. I meant slap. Like,
0: Yeah, but you know what I mean? Oh, I'm sorry. Pow. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was trying to make a difference because you were like, she hit a baby. I was like, oh, damn, she slapped. And then you said, in a parking lot, oh, no, she like ran over a baby. No, I'm sorry. And then you said, he hit her. And then I was like, wait, no, they're back to slapping. Or he ran over her. I'm <laughs> like, sorry. I'm sorry. No, it totally made sense, but it was just funny. Like <laughs> We have to keep y'all guessing. I mean, edge of your seat. This
1: is... Quality journalism storytelling. Exactly. I'm not going to go through every single body that was found. I'm going to touch on a few. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. We are in deep deep south louisiana like i'm talking even south of new orleans so we're we're in deep bayou territory meaning it's a lot of waterways it's a lot of like sugarcane fields it's a lot of hot swampy like literally air especially in the summertime hell even in fucking december sometimes it's still 70 degrees like it is hot, right? And I hate to use this terminology as a a good job, but Ronald Dominique really did do a good job as a serial killer with his dumping of bodies because he would dump them far enough off the beaten path to where it would take days to find them. They wouldn't be like buried or they'd be in plain sight, but they would be again, like in a cane field or in a bayou or something like that, where it would be, it would take a minute to find, you know, it'd take a couple of days to find them. And so by that time, these bodies that were found in May, June, August, I mean, after a few days, there was nothing left. They were so decomposed from the elements that a lot of times they couldn't even tell the cause of death. Mm-hmm. So at one point when they finally, this was in March of 2005, when they finally developed a task force. At that point, they said, anybody that's found that meets the criteria of a man from the ages of, some stuff said 16, some stuff said 19, to 40 years old, especially a black man that was not stabbed or shot, was automatically assumed to be the victim of the Bayou Strangler. Because they were, because they, again, they were so decomposed that they didn't know, they didn't know the cause of death of a lot of them. So it was like, they didn't know if it was like asphyxiation from like, let's say a pillow or hell, even like a ball gag or something, you know, I mean, versus like strangulation. So for some of them, they don't even know how the airway was restricted. They just know they stopped breathing from some mechanical force put on by a killer. So that, you know what I mean? Yes. Okay. The first body found in 1997 was David Mitchell, and he was found in Honville in St. Charles Parish. So here's the other thing, is that he would dump the bodies in... A bunch of different parishes. So in Louisiana, I know we've done stories in Louisiana, but the counties are called parishes. So he dumped bodies in St. Charles Parish, in Jefferson Parish, in Lafourche Parish, in Terrebonne Parish, Iberville Parish, and Assumption Parish. So it's like seven different parishes that he dumped bodies in. Most of them were in Terrebonne, Lafourche, Jefferson, and St. Charles Then after that initial killing, the cooling off period kind of varied. It would go from after that very first murder, the second victim was Gary Pierre, and he was found December of 1997. So it was just like a six-month cooling off period because most of them were found, again, within a few days. And again, I know I told y'all I'm not going to read all the names, even though I think they all deserve to be read, but I am going to do a few right here. The first two victims were 19 and 20 years old. And then Larry Ranson. he was 38. But he was found seven months later in July of 98. Well, then Oliver Lee Banks, who was 27, he was found in October of 98. So, you see, we've got like a five, six-month period, right? But then after Oliver, boom, Joseph, he's 16. He was October of 98. So, it was like, then it was just like, boom, two in one month. Then Bruce Williams, eighteen years old, November of ninety eight. So it's like you have you go from six months to two in October and one in November, and then he waits again until May, and then he goes May, June, August, and then waits till January, and then again until October. You know, so it's like you had these weird. Not that that I, I really never saw anything about the pattern of the dates. But I thought it was interesting.
0: I wish we knew what was going on in his life during those longer periods, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we do know that he struggled financially. I'm sure that they could trace it back because, you know, he had some times where he lived with his mom. Sometimes he lived with his sister. And I think he had a camper that he would put like on his sister's property and mm. stuff too. So some of it could have been could have been that, you know, if he was living in his mother's house versus had a camper on his sister's property versus living in a homeless shelter or something like that. So some of it literally could have been, he didn't have anywhere to take the men that he was killing.
0: Right.
1: You know, the thing that baffled investigators was there was literally nothing that tied these victims together other than age which was still a pretty large span 16 to 40 that's not really so not really age mostly they were african american but not all of them mostly they were homeless but not all of them a lot of them had drug problems but not all of them a lot of them were gay but not all of them you know so it was like what the fuck yeah how in the hell how in the how in the hell how did this one person do this yeah but they were done by the same people but it was also like but like how'd y'all know they were done by the same people true like how how'd you know because if they were like that was kind of my thing too when i was like watching and reading some of this it's like but really how'd you know if some of their bodies were so decomposed that you you literally didn't even know the cause of death how could you know yeah uh, But I think that some of the disposal sites would be so similar. And like in that documentary, I loved this one detective. She was so fucking badass. And she had been, I think she worked for Tarabon Parish. And she had been working it for so long. She worked the whole 10 years. And she just reminded me of, you remember... That scene in Era Brockovich when that company comes in, that law firm comes Mm -hmm. in, and they're like, well, your records are incomplete. And she's like, what's missing? And they're like, you didn't have phone numbers for some of these people. And and she's like, whose phone number do you need? And they're like, there's no way you have all these phone numbers memorized. And she's like, whose phone number do you need? Yes. That girl was giving me so much of those vibes right then. Because she knew, she would be like, hey, you want me to take you to blah, blah, blah's disposal site, turn left on this dirt road, and then take this right. You know? Yeah. Like, she just, I mean, she just knew this case like the back of her hand. Like, I mean, it it was just effortless how, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, she was just so, and it wasn't, she just fucking knew it. It was so badass. Yeah. But they had you at one person's disposal site, and it was along a bayou, but she was like, you see that mini, like that mini storage right there? She's like, that's the dumb spot for... Of course, I have a fucking brain fart, and I can't remember who. And she said, you know, there was just an open storage unit with no lock, and so he just put him in there. So that body took us a little longer to find because wow, that was just a dumb luck. But So some of the dump sites you could literally see from the other, right? So it was, you know what I mean? It was like, that's part of it, too. But police just couldn't figure out what the ruse was that was getting all of these men from all of these different backgrounds in the car because they weren't all gay. You know, they were all raped. So they weren't all gay. They weren't all on drugs. They weren't all homeless. So what was it that was getting them all in the car to go away with this person so that they could be attacked? And also, who was this person that was fucking strong enough to take these men away and subdue them to kill them, you know? Yeah. There's only one victim that we know for sure that Dominique had contact with before he killed them. Like, meaning earlier, at least in the day, the day before, that kind of thing. So, Nicholas Pellegrine... His body was found November 2005 in Lafouche Parish. So I also want you to keep that date in mind too, because I know some people are probably going to roll their eyes because I feel like we talk about this all the time. But Hurricane Katrina hit at the very end, August 29th of 2005. And we're talking so far down south that these people were under 10 feet of water. I mean, straight water. That Bayou Blue documentary talked a little bit about like Katrina fatigue and all of that, and how like people really do get tired of hearing about it. And it's, I totally get that, but it's a fact that it really does impact the way cases are handled. The yeah, way, I mean, it took law enforcement away for a solid six months to from doing anything prosecutorially. To helping people survive. Yeah. We can't look for this serial killer because we're trying to get you food. We're trying to get trucks of ice and food into you. We're trying to get you to your back to your houses. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. bigger fish to fry here, you know? Yep. And that's like basics on the hierarchy of needs, you know? So Nicholas Pellegrin had been working some sort of construction job and dominique was reading meters like walking around doing meter readings of houses to like see how much electricity you'd put out and they saw each other and they chatted for a minute and i don't i don't really know what they talked about it was something to do with drugs i don't know who who brought it up to whom or you know who said i've got what doesn't fucking matter but they exchanged numbers to be able to get drugs from one another but dominique didn't actually have drugs he was like I like him. I want him to be my next victim. Nicholas Pellegrin thought he had drugs. Or wanted to sell him drugs or vice versa. Who cares? He thought he was all about drugs. He didn't know he was about to be his next victim. And so that's the only victim that we know for sure they had some contact ahead of time. Ronald Dominique used a payphone, called him, set up to meet. That's when he got him to his house, tied him up, raped him, and killed him. Because that's what he would do. Take them to his house, rape them, and kill them. So, the next part of the story, I've heard a couple of different ways. One thing was that this guy named Ricky was at his parole officers, like, for his, like, monthly or weekly parole check-in, and they were like, hey, have you, like, because this is when the task force has been formed, and they're like, what the fuck, we need some help. Like, and the parole officer is like, man, have you seen, do you know anything that's been going on? Like, please tell us. There's some other stories about how this came about, but this is the story I'm going to go with. Because this was the first way I heard it. You know, the first way you hear something is always the way you think's right. Anyway, so Ricky tells his parole officer, okay, man, look. Actually, about four or five years ago, this guy pulls up in a truck. But he had passed me like four or five times as I was standing there on the street. And he pulls up and he says, hey man, I got a wife and she wants to have sex with a guy that looks like you. And he offered to pay me, I'm pretending to be Ricky, and he offered to pay me to come have sex with his wife. Now at the time, I think Ricky was homeless and Ricky really needed the fucking money y'all and he had a picture. And so Ricky was like, I knew I shouldn't have fucking done it. I knew I shouldn't have fucking done it, but I needed the money, so I got the truck. And so they chatted, and, you know, it doesn't seem weird, but they went to the house, you know, and when they got there, the guy was like, okay, you know, she's shy, but if you're going to have sex with her, you've got to take your clothes off, wrap up in this towel, handcuff yourself, and lay on your stomach.
0: Uh, no. Mm-mm. No. No. And Ricky was like, you
1: got me fucking twisted, man. I ain't, uh uh-uh. I'm not handcuffing myself. Fuck no. Yeah, you got me straight tripping, boo. No, I'm not going to fucking do it. What movie is that from? I forgot. Friday. No. Uh, With
0: Queen Latifah and Steve Martin. Houseguest?
1: Yeah. And so he's like, I'm I'm so fucking literally not. Am I doing that? And the guy's like, no, you know, like, she's not going to have sex with you unless you're doing this. Like, it's the only way she feels comfortable, like blah, blah, blah. But like, look how beautiful, you know, they, you know, they, they negotiate basically for forever. And Ricky's like, I'm not fucking doing it, man. Take me back where you picked me up. Like I'm out. And I'm talking, this was like a 30 minute disagreement. It was a long time, right? Well, finally the dude caved and agreed to take him back where he picked him up. Well, once they got in the car and they started making their way back to where he picked him up, Ricky noticed that the guy kept like As he's driving, sticking his left hand like in the door like he's looking for something. And Ricky, of course, immediately notices this and is like, hell fucking no. And he finds a bottle. And he was like, man, if you don't get your hand out from that door and quit looking for whatever I know you're looking for, I'm going to hit you over the head with this bottle. And I'm going to push down that accelerator. And so he like pulled his hand out and took him back to where he was. And he got out of the truck and told nobody ever again. Until that day, wow! And so he told police the story, and police are like, do you, "Do you remember where?" Because again, this is in this is in Bayou Blue, which is really small. And since they're in Bayou Blue, they're like, "Man, you remember where this house was?" Like, because this is not a very large town. I mean, you remember where it is? And he was like, "Man, hell yeah, I remember where this is." You know? And so he's like, well, "Let's go!" And he takes him to this house. He points to the camper where. Ronald Dominique is living out on his sister's land.
0: Wow.
1: And so they're like, God dang. You know, they're like, holy shit, did this just get... Yeah. Did this just get solved?
0: Yeah. You know?
1: And they've got... Police have a little bit of evidence. You know, they've got a little bit of evidence up their sleeve. Nobody knows about it. They've got a little bit of, like, mitochondrial DNA. But it's not enough to, like, really... I mean... A really good defense attorney could probably get it turned around and nobody... You know, it wouldn't be anything to convict on kind of thing. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So police go to Dominique's house and he opens the door and he's surprisingly helpful. Like, he comes with him. He, like, volunteers a DNA sample. Like, he's super jovial and fucking helpful. But police know that they have nothing to arrest him on yet They just have this one story. They have no evidence about anything. So they had just brought him in for questioning, and they let him go. Knowing that his butthole is clenched tighter than a horse's ass. (laughs) I don't know if that's a saying, but you know it's clenched so damn tight. Yeah. But they let him go, and they send off the DNA, you know, to be whatevered, tested. (laughs) But... Again, we're just, like, two months out from Katrina, so shit is back the fuck up. So they have to send it to, like, a third-party person who says it's going to take a year. Oh, my gosh. So they have to wait. They're, that's literally all they can fucking do. And so police are like, fuck. Okay. So they put a 24-hour surveillance on him. And they're like, I mean, that that's literally... All we can fucking do is put a surveillance on him. So at first they do, but then, I mean, funds deplete fast. I mean, how do you even justify this, you know? And so police officers do this in their free time, They you know, without pay, yada, yada, yada. Gosh. But what ends up happening is that his sister, who stood beside him through a lot of this, Dominique's sister, Honestly, some stuff says they don't really know why he moves out, but some stuff says that even though she really believed him when he said that he didn't do it, it became too much for her having this 24-hour police surveillance on her house. And even though she was still a little like, okay, I believe my brother, it was still like, no, there's 24-hour police surveillance on my house. Like, this is too much. Like, you've got to move out. And she basically told him, you got to go. Yeah. So he moved out of her house. And just like majority of his victims, he ended up having to move into a homeless shelter. It's just interesting, the full circle. He targeted so many people who were considered the quote unquote less dead, which that's so fucked up. And I hate even saying that. But that's why this case. Well, hold on. I'm going to get on that high horse just yet. Let me, let me get on that soapbox later. Anyway, when he moved into the homeless shelter, it was actually owned, because it was a privately owned homeless shelter, by one of the sheriff's deputies. Like by, it's like So like, it was like a, by a law enforcement officer. I, I don't know. It may not have been a sheriff's deputy, but I think it was. So they were able to keep some tabs on him. But, of course, he was lost to some. There was not this constant 24-hour surveillance on him, Because they just couldn't. Again, there was no funding. People were doing it on their own time. They were doing as close to 24 hours as they could. But people were putting in their own personal time for it. They were keeping the best tabs that they could. But he did slip away. And that's when he killed the very last victim, Christopher Sutterfield. And that was October of 2006. But the DNA sample eventually came back that it did match. And they did move forward and arrest him and he went willingly and within three hours had confessed to everything. He confessed to all 23 murders. He knew details of everything. He may not have remembered everybody's name, but he knew details that nobody other than him and the police would know. Stuff that was never released to newspapers and that sort of thing. Some people that say that maybe he was forced to plead guilty to all of those counts of murder, but he did it within three hours, and it was just him talking, and it's all recorded, and it's all like, you can go and listen to it. You know, it's not like they didn't put all their eggs in one basket with him. You know, he literally fell into their lap with Ricky telling them that story. You know, it wasn't like they had been honing in on him this whole time. It, You know, I don't know. This just seemed like a legit investigation. You know, the Bayou Blue documentary that I watched, it has more interviews with family members. It was just interesting to see their different takes on the investigation and this poor older lady, she said that she was related to eight of the victims. Oh my gosh. Look, it's all in these small little towns that are all right beside one another, you know, like in these little, you know, it's just, they're all connected and it's just, I don't know. It's just so sad. But what they ended up doing, the district attorney, because here's the thing. If you remember, he did not, he hated jail. He did not want to go back to prison or jail, or anything. He wanted the death penalty, right? So, the district attorney talked to the family members, and they got him to plead guilty to first-degree murder on eight different cases. That means life in prison, which would be served out consecutively, but in Louisiana, that doesn't matter. Life is life. Like, there's literally no chance of parole in Louisiana, period, when you get a life sentence for first-degree murder. So, he's got a life sentence. And they did that so that he would have to serve it in prison, in Angola, no death row, no in a cell by himself. He would have to serve the prison sentence that he did not want to serve. Yeah. I felt really sorry for Nicholas Pellegrin's mom watching that documentary because... She said that the district attorney didn't talk to her and that that's not what she wanted. She said that she wanted her day in court so that she would be able to listen to Ronald Dominique say why he killed her son and all of that. And while I completely understand what she's saying, there's no guarantee that he would have testified. Right. In fact, he probably wouldn't have testified. Right. The odds of him testifying was slim to none. Mm-hmm. She probably would have never heard him utter a peep. Mm-hmm. And so all it would have done was would be to drag out these trials for a decade or more. Yeah. For all of these family members. You know, so what's the right answer for her and her family? I don't know. But, I mean, I definitely think the harshest punishment for him is him having to serve that prison time that he didn't want to serve Mm -hmm. which is why he started killing in the first place. Yep. According to him.
0: Poetic justice. Yep. So he is
1: serving life in prison in Angola, in Louisiana, which is one of the toughest state penitentiaries in the United States. Damn. Ooh. Angola's got some fucking stories. And he's still alive today. Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot to tell you this. Okay. So... I'm so glad you asked that. So when police went to arrest him at that homeless shelter, he had literally just within days of being arrested had a heart attack, like a bad one. So he was like on a cane. Of course he was really milking it. He was like, I mean like milking it, like stooped over, like, I mean like, Whoa, milking it. So that he looked like he was this frail guy that could not lift these bodies.
0: The Golden State Killer could never. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Like, literally, (laughs) yes. Shown up in a wheelchair and then crawling on his furniture. Yes. (laughs) So he was banking on his shitty heart condition, killing him, and him not having to serve this time in prison. And then it came out that he is pissed at his prison insurance. Because it's been so good that it has like literally saved his life and like made his heart condition so much better. Oh my
0: god! That he's
1: like fine right now. Damn, <laughs> like in pretty fucking good health, and so yeah. like he's he's fine. Wow, Go with a pretty good ticker. Wow. Yeah. So fuck you. Yeah. Like that just made me so like. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, a little like, fuck you that he has better insurance than most people. now. I was about to say that. But that's a whole nother, whole nother. Mm-hmm. But one of the things with this too, though, is that a lot of these family members, even in these interviews and all of that, would say, you know, because they were raped and because Dominique was gay, they would be like, well, my son's not gay. You know, that's not how he got him. But he he had m- multiple different ruses that he would use to get people. So he would strike up a conversation. If he thought you were gay, he'd offer gay sex. For money, for not money, whatever. If he thought you were straight, he would show you a picture of a pretty girl and s- offer you to come have sex with her for money. If he thought you were on drugs, he would offer you drugs or money for drugs or whatever. And so he was the ultimate con artist in that way to get you in the car. And then he would con you once he got you to his house to restrain yourself. And then that's when he would rape you and then kill you and then dispose of your body. Yeah. And so that's how he was able to overpower these men that were bigger and stronger than him. More agile, more... In better health and all of these things, even when he did have his heart conditions. That's why towards the end, some of the bodies were easier to find was because of his heart condition, he wasn't able to get them out as far Mm -hmm. because he didn't have the endurance to drag them.
0: Yeah. All I can picture with you about his con artist stuff is like him with the trench coat and been like, you got You want gay sex, I got it. You want straight sex, I got it. You want this, I got it. Yes. Over here, I got it. You know what I mean? Like picture the market at Aladdin. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I'm picturing. It's not funny. But it's just like.
1: Even though this happened, some of these in early 2000s, it's like some of the families still are so defensive about the way in which their family members died. Like not that they were murdered. Not that they were all of these things. It's like, well, they're not gay. And it's like... Who cares? They were fucking murdered. Who cares if they were gay? Who cares what got them there? People will do a lot of fucking things when they need money. Yes.
0: And like, who cares?
1: That... And even some of them, like... One of the newspapers had said one of the victims was homeless. And... An interview with his grandmother, I think, she was so pissed because she was like, he's not homeless. He's got all these, his mom, his aunts, all these people he can stay with. He's not homeless. Uh He wasn't staying with them. That's literally the definition. You yeah. know what I mean? If he's like couch, even if he's couch surfing. Yeah. Like they, he's still homeless though. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And so it's like, they just are so wrapped up in these like definitions that are or labels that are being placed on their family members. But also, I kind of understand it because, I mean, 23 people are dead and the New York Times didn't want it and said it's a local fucking story. Are you kidding me? Right. Like, why? Why is this a local story? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, why? Because they were homeless men, because they were mostly black or African-American, or because they were mostly had substance abuse issues, or because they were mostly gay, or because, or or bi, or, like, why? Why is this not more national news? Is it because they're... All of the above, because all of those equal... A, quote-unquote, less dead, marginalized population. yes that do not get the justice... Well, in this case, they did get the justice they needed. It took a long time, but they did get the justice they needed. But honestly, if Ricky had never come forward, I don't know that they... I mean, I don't know how they would have unless his fucking heart condition eventually took him. But also, one thing I was listening to was talking about there were so many other serial killers active at the same time, like Wesley Allen Mm Dodd and the Jennings... Serial killer, it was active. Hell, that he still hadn't been caught. Right. I used to think about that every time because that was my Jennings, Louisiana, was my halfway point between home in Mississippi and Houston when I lived there. And so that's where I would stop and get gas every time. And I always stopped at that one, I loved that fucking gas station. Anyway, and I would always stop at that one gas station, and get gas, and I would always think about that. I'm like, there's a serial killer active here.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of women missing here. Yeah. Be on alert. <laughs> Golly. You know how people didn't think your guy would be like capable of, you know, like the 23 murders. Mhm. Well, I see that and my guy talking about my guy. <laughs> well, the guy I'm going to talk about, no one thought he was capable of what he did either. And some might say that the devil made him do it. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. All right, so as I mentioned, last story to cover for this year. Thank goodness, 2020, goodbye. But I wanted to combine both true crime and paranormal, so picture it. Brookfield, Connecticut, 1981. Donna's favorite decade. Just kidding, her least favorite. (laughs) Except for her birthday. That's right. 1985, perfect. Everything else, hate.
1: Hate, 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 hate. hate. (laughs) She also doubles as the Grinch. (laughs) Uh,
0: Brookfield is a small, sleepy Connecticut town. Super safe. Super boring, the kids might say. Nothing really went on here that would cause people to lock their doors. Until. Well, they hadn't even had a murder in 193 years. But like Carrie said... All that changed on February 16th, 1981. On that day, 19-year-old Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, who goes by Cheyenne, he called in sick to his job at Wright Tree Service because if he wasn't feeling good, he was only going to feel worse if he went into work because, you know, manual labor. However, then he decides to go join his 27-year-old girlfriend, sometimes they say fiance. But her name's Debbie at her job, where she grooms dogs at Brookfield Pet Motel. And it wasn't just him. He brought along his 15-year-old sister, Wanda, and I believe Debbie's 9-year-old cousin, Mary. Everything was normal. Everything was going great. And then Debbie's boss, who happened to also be their landlord at the time, Alan Bono, he came down and was like, let's go to lunch. My treat. So he took everyone to this local bar called the Mug and Munch. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not the focus in the story. <laughs> it said that he ordered wine and he drank excessively. But another version also said that he and Cheyenne both drank excessively. But nevertheless, they left the bar finally and it was time to go back to work. But Alan really wanted to continue this fun day upstairs in his apartment just hanging out. But I'm kind of confused because, like, Debbie then took the girls for pizza for dinner, I guess. I think they had been maybe there for, like, three hours at that bar or something. You know, so, like, time had passed. So Debbie and the girls are gone to get pizza. But she kind of just feels weird. And so she kind of rushes them to eat the pizza and get back to the kennels. And maybe it's because both men were drinking, Who knows? Or just call it women's intuition. Well, they got back, and Alan was, like, pumping his fist into his other palm. Kind of like, you know, like, you want to fight, chump? You know, like, that kind of shit. And Debbie's like, oh, fuck. Okay. All right. Let's just go. But Alan doesn't want them to go. And so he grabs nine-year-old Mary and kind of refuses to let her go. Well, Cheyenne was headed to the car. Because, you know, again, Debbie was kind of breaking everything up and probably was like, you better get to that fucking car, Mm -hmm. you know. And so he was headed to the car, but with that commotion going on, he goes back inside. And so he tells Alan to release Mary. He did, and Mary ran out and got into the car, probably crying because that's what I would have been doing. So now it's just Alan, Cheyenne, Debbie, and Wanda there. And Debbie was still trying to mediate whatever was going on. And Wanda tugged on her brother, and then she just pulled with all of her might, trying to move him, like, hey, let's just go. But she recalled to the police later, he was like a statue. Like, she could not get him to budge one bit. And just then, there in that moment was a flashing glint of silver in the air, and then silence until Alan Bono dropped to the ground And then Cheyenne growled like some wild animal was inside of him. Then he took off out of the kennels and ran into the woods behind it. They called after Cheyenne, but he just kept running. And that's when they looked back to Alan and they saw that he was bleeding. And that he had been stabbed several times in the chest and in the stomach. Oh, shit. And there was that glint of silver again, but it was coming a few feet away, and when they looked, they saw it was something on the ground. It was Cheyenne's pocket knife that he always carried, and it was opened, and it was bloody. Debbie ran into the apartment and called her mom and was like, Oh my God, there's been a fight. Please come here right now. And in the background, Debbie could hear her little brother Just screaming. The beast did it. No one saw it, but he went into Cheyenne and stabbed Alan. Cheyenne didn't do it. The beast stabbed Alan five times with a knife. So now we're going to take a detour to find out who is the beast that Debbie's brother Alan is talking about. All right, we're going back a year. And at this point, Debbie Cheyenne, along with Cheyenne's mother Mary, And his three younger sisters were all going to move from Bridgeport into a rental property in Newtown. And Bridgeport, to them, seemed to be filled with crime and was just not safe. And this is what was so appealing about Newtown and Brookfield. These were the places you wanted to start and raise a family. They just had that promising future feel. However, Debbie's family, along with Cheyenne's, helped the couple clean their future rental on... July 2nd, 1980. Everything was cleared out. But still, you want to know that the grime is your grime that's there, mm-hmm. not someone else's. But then they got to one room that wasn't cleared out like the owner said it would be. It was a master bedroom. And it had a large waterbed that had a canopy on it. And we all know waterbeds are like impossible to move and are huge anyway, so, you can't really clean around it or move furniture in or anything like that. So, thanks, previous owner. Mm-hmm. But two of Debbie's brothers, Carl Jr. and Alan, they made a good time out of the bad situation, and they jumped on the damn waterbed. Look, you want to talk about
1: some of the most fun we ever had at my sister's swimming pool was when my parents finally got rid of their waterbed. This is probably 15 years ago. My parents got finally got rid of their waterbed. We took that mattress... And we put it in Christie's pool and we would have one of the kids on one end and we would jump off the diving board and onto the other and have them go flying oh in the air. Oh my gosh. Because they have a fucking huge pool. Like, I think, I really do think it's like the biggest pool you can get without like being Olympic. I mean, I don't know. I don't know shit about pools, but <laughs> it's fucking huge. And so you were able to do this when, and you know, them not go flying into the concrete. Oh my God. It was so much
0: fun. <laughs> That's hilarious. I fucking hate a waterbed.
1: Oh, I loved it because this is so stupid. But like when mom and dad would, when we were kids, because you used to have to put that blue chemical stuff in it every so often to keep it from getting, I don't know, algae or whatever. And we would like get the bubbles out for them. And so, I don't know, they probably made this up, but you would have to get all the, like the extra air out of it. And so they would have us like start on one end and you would, like, roll over the bed, and Dad, Dad would tell you to stop so he could, like, get the bubbles where he wanted them, and then you'd start rolling again. He'd be like, stop, and he'd like roll, and you'd, like, help him roll all the bubbles together while he... And then he put the put the chemicals in, and you'd go. Huh. I loved it.
0: No. I hated sleeping on them. I hated everything. Because one, uh, the only time I had to sleep on one is with Carrie, who uh, does not stay still. Which is why I love them.
1: Mm-hmm. Except for this one time... When I was sleeping in mine by myself and I sunk down too low and I was on my heater. Oh, God. And it was real hot. <laughs> and it I was like, God, this is so fucking hot.
0: <laughs> That's the heater. I was on the- <laughs> God, I hate a fucking waterbed. And you couldn't get on one of those, like, Easily. Or I couldn't. I don't know. No, no. You rolled in and you rolled out. Yeah. I hated that. Look, being a big girl, I was always like, I can't get on that easily. Like, I don't want to be the one to poke a fucking hole. I don't want to Edward Scissorhand that with my weight. You couldn't. You wouldn't. I I don't want to hit the
1: heater, okay? If I owned a waterbed and I handled it
0: okay, never punched a hole in it, you'd have been fine. Okay, so Carl Jr. and Alan jumping on the waterbed. They must have been skinny because I would have been like, don't be jumping on the waterbed. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Because even though, like, it's a rental property, like, if something happened, like, it would delay me moving in. Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. But David, her other little brother, he didn't want to. And it said that he was a little heavier and he also got really bad motion sickness. So he just watched. And I was like, shade. That's for fucking shade. I was like, he didn't get motion sickness. Let me just tell you. Being a big person, I he can. He fucking knew his boundaries. Uh huh. I can tell you. And be like, oh, yeah. Mm, nah, I don't. Mm-mm, I'm good. Yeah. I get I get motion sickness. Uh huh. When all of this has to go all the way up there. Yeah.
1: My belly does those same movements. Oh, my okay? god. Right. I don't need a bed to do them. All I got to do is wiggle. Oh, my God. Wiggle, wiggle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Well, as David was watching them jump, the door to the master bedroom closed. And then when they tried to open it, no such luck. The boys kept trying and were finally able to get themselves free from the room and just kind of shook it off as a freak accident. And I don't know, like, you know, kids, kids. And reasoning it away, like, hey, maybe us jumping on the bed, vibrations, that kind of shit. Who knows? So they went back to helping clean, move stuff, but little did they know that was just the beginning. Now, you have to know that Debbie's brother David was 11 years old, and he was the one who didn't want to jump on the bed. So he's sweeping around it, and he said that he was pushed onto the bed by something. And he was startled to see this old man who was kind of see-through. Well, then the old man kind of was threatening to him and warned him, like saying, like, beware, that kind of thing. And at first his parents were like, oh, my God, David, shut up. You have to keep cleaning. You cannot get out of cleaning. You need to do this. It'll be good for you, that type of thing. But things started to get worse, and David saw the old man more and more. And the more he saw the old man, the more evil he seemed to be. At one point, David described the old man as being a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features, jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hooves. And then a little later, David would sometimes see the old man during the day, but he wouldn't look evil per se, he would look quote-unquote normal as an old man with a white beard dressed in like a flannel shirt and jeans, but even though he seemed to be an unassuming gentle old man, there was still that evil radiating from his spirit. Then one day David said he could see the ghost in his mind travel out of an old well at that rental home in Newtown And it was like he was flying above the trees and headed to their home in Brookfield. And soon after, he started to plead with his family to protect him as the old man got closer. And they were utterly confused and probably annoyed and scared because they didn't know what to believe. Because at this point, David was hysterically yelling. And just then, David yelled that he was now at the front door. And right then, three loud knocks seemed to confirm David's suspicion about the old man's arrival. Well, that made Cheyenne, Debbie, and Judy, their mom, believe David. And Judy really didn't know what to do, but they were devout Catholics, so she had holy water, and so she sprinkled it on the front door, and then on the windows, and she was just basically like, David, where else is he? You know, and... Mm -hmm. She would sprinkle it, you know, like just trying to help him. But also, she's scared too. Yeah. And then, sounding kind of defeated, David said somehow he was in the attic. And he was waiting in the rafters for them. And they all just were like, okay, what the fuck? Like, okay, what do we do? And they started to hear some banging, some scratching, Something that sounded like something was being dragged along. Well, Cheyenne, being the, I don't know, young, dumb, and full of comb guy he was, um, you know, wanting to impress Debbie, Mm -hmm. wanting to be the hero of the day, I'm sure, went up to the attic to look around. Well, he said nothing was out of place. Everything was just dusty, musty. But he did feel like this icy, cold, just wash over him. And then he heard some distant whispers. And you know that motherfucker fear farted. You know he did. Mm -hmm. But that was that. Like, he was like, nothing was in the attic. Like, it was some weird feelings, but nothing much. But that next day, David was like, no, he is in the attic. And now he has helpers. And David just kind of, like, described them all in detail. Described them all with, like, names and everything. And they all just seemed demonic. And they would start to tease and taunt David with, like, whips and everything. And, like, act like they were going to hit him and, like, actually, like, crack the whip. But it wouldn't hit him. It would come super close. And so it was like they were slowly breaking him down kind of just testing to see where they could get. It was soon after that, the old man told David that he was known as the beast and he wanted David's soul. And 11-year-old David was fighting so hard to keep himself safe. But then the old man's quote-unquote helpers started to actually hurt David. He was then punched, slapped, And, you know, physically harmed by these invisible entities. And people who were around him said that you could hear the sounds of what was happening. And you could see, like, it looked like him getting slapped. But you just couldn't see who was doing the slapping. And so they couldn't risk it anymore. So the Glatzils, that's David's family, They asked Father James Dennis, who was a priest from the nearby St. Joseph's Catholic Church, to bless their home. But, of course, that didn't help. And David kept seeing his scary visions and hearing those sounds. And David would not find peace again for a long time. Over the next few months, he gained like 60 pounds. Oh, God. Poor baby. And they said that, People would have to start sleeping during the day so they could stay up at night to help him because he would be violent. He would growl. He would hiss. He would speak in strange voices. He started to recite the Bible. He started to recite passages from Paradise Lost, things that he wouldn't know. Like what 11-year-old reads Paradise Lost. Right. Let alone to recite it. Well, Father James Dennis was planning on visiting his mother in Ireland, and he was like, you know what? I don't want it to attack my mom. I don't want it to attach to me and, you know, whatever. I don't know if my health is up for it because he knew that kid needed an exorcism. So he contacted two people he knew would be up for the task, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. They were local, living in the neighboring town of Monroe, and Father Dennis knew that they had dealt with matters and lived to tell the tale. And so this is right after the Amityville case. So their names were out there, but they weren't known like they are today. You know, RIP, but the controversy's not there. Well, they rushed to the home, like, same same day, like, okay, let's, you know, let's do this. Well, they brought along one of their friends who was a doctor and they wanted to do a medical evaluation on David as well because they had been told that he had been diagnosed with having a learning disability. And this doctor had a son with a similar disability. So he was, you know, pretty familiar with that. And they wanted to make sure that they weren't just like, oh, okay, okay. It's actually a medical disorder, not a supernatural phenomena. Phenomena. Well, right when they arrived, Ed Warren, he tripped going up the steps of the house. And Ed, he's like, look, I am not clumsy. And I didn't, like, stub my foot against anything. I, you know, you know, there wasn't a pebble there. Okay. And uh, he said it was like... An invisible hand grabbed my ankle and I went right down. And his friend, the doctor, was laughing because, you know, it like, what the fuck? Like, you okay, yeah. dude? Yeah. You know? And when he he was like, look, I really didn't trip. Like something fucking tripped me. And the doctor was like, sure, sure. Okay. Okay. And then right then he was tripped as well. <gasps> Uh Uh-huh. Payback's a bitch. Right? Well, so when they entered, David knew. And he was like, yeah, y'all both fell. And they were like, what? You know? And he was like, yeah, the beast told me. No. Mm Mm-hmm. Lorraine talks about that they were sitting there at the table talking to David. And, uh, you know, David would be doodling and just, like, concentrating on what he... Was doing, and then he would look up, and she said he would no longer be an 11 year old boy, you know. And yeah. she said that she could see like a black mass just that centered around him that was behind him. And when Ed communicated, like by speaking out loud, the entity would reply to him with like loud bangs or knocks or You know, anything. So they actually had communication with the beast. And as they continued, you know, to try to figure out how to help David, what steps needed, you know, needed to happen, and they were trying to work with the church, the demons continued to punish David. His hair was ripped from his scalp in different places. And at one point, he was forced to do sit ups until he vomited.
1: Mm, so like three in my case.
0: I mean, yeah, same.
1: Golly, that poor baby.
0: I know, it's so sad, but all I can think about it is, like, talk about exorcising. Uh, okay. I know, I had to say it. And here's the thing. Okay, also, he David's a Leo, shout out, because his birthday was August 13th. It was his 12th birthday. And they tried so hard just to be normal for that moment. You know, like, okay, we're just going to... We're just going to celebrate David like it's just going to be a normal day. But it couldn't be a normal day, you know. And when they were going to cut the cake, the cake flew up to the ceiling and stayed there for a bit. And then fell back down and icing was still up on the ceiling. And you know that was a bitch to clean off. And the best damn part of a cake. I would be so pissed. Right? Ugh. So bad. Well, so obviously Cheyenne was close with Debbie's family and he had moved in to help them with David at this point. And on one really bad day, he was just fed up. And I mean, just like you were saying, like this poor kid, bless his heart. So Cheyenne was like, you know what? Okay. Okay you know what, if you're going to pick on someone, if you're going to do anything, leave the boy alone. Come take me on. Like, I'm not scared of you. You know, all the things. And that might have been the reason for what happened that day when he stabbed Alan Bonham. So let's go back to that day real quick, because Cheyenne was found approximately an hour later, just wandering about a mile from the whole crime scene. And just a little, like, what coincidence, he was found by the same ambulance driver who had just took Alan to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. Cheyenne was reported to be in a daze, and he kind of muttered, like, I think I hurt someone, but I don't know. And he didn't put up any resistance and was arrested by the police, and he was charged with first-degree murder. And, like, he just sat in his cell, and he just didn't understand what was going on. He spoke to himself, but, like, it was incoherent, and then he fell asleep. So the murder made national headline news because, again, this town had not had a murder in, like, 193 years. And so they were about to celebrate their anniversary, and then, uh, (laughs) (laughs) nope, you got a murder. Right, right. But then also, Cheyenne's attorney, Martin Manella, he kind of like let everyone know what his plan was. He was like, you know what? Cheyenne's not guilty because he was possessed by the devil. And then Debbie went public and just kind of told everything about David and, you know, everything. Judy came forward and talked about Like the church and, you know, just like everything. And so it was a media circus. People were either skeptical or, holy shit, the devil is real and this is a case for it. And you know what I mean? It was just polar opposites. Well, the Danbury Superior Court Judge, Robert J. Callahan, he was like, you know what? That defense of yours, the demon defense, not in this courtroom, buddy. Like, not at all. It's not relevant, and it's incompetent evidence, and I will not allow it. Mm-hmm. So Martin Manella, he he tried to bring David's case into Cheyenne's case. Like, look, David was possessed. Like, David had all of this stuff, and Cheyenne was right there. Cheyenne exhibits some of this stuff. But Judge Callahan was like, no, Mm-mm. nope, and he suppressed any reference made to possession. Because I didn't go into this, though, but, like, Debbie said that Cheyenne would at like David, kind of go, like, into trances and different things like that. And, like, they knew when David would go into, like, his quote-unquote, like, possessed stage, his head would go down for a little bit. And then, like, when his head would come back up, his face was different. He was different. And that's kind of how... Cheyenne was too, and so she kind of noticed it at the, you know, like wait, 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 and then maybe that's why she was kind of rushing back to the kennel that day. You know, like hey, I can't leave him alone really because I can't trust him because of that, and if alcohol was involved, that's even like throw that wrench in there, and who the fuck knows? Mm-hmm. Well. The trial started on October 28, 1981, and Cheyenne refused to plead guilty because he said he did not remember the crime and he cannot plead guilty to something he does not remember. Well, the state prosecutors, they were like, well, this is what, like, here's a tea of it all or whatever you used to say. This was just like a love triangle gone wrong. Debbie and Alan were doing something and... So Cheyenne was mad. Well, then Cheyenne was alone with Alan, you know, the whole thing. And so, like, then they confronted each other. They were both drunk. And so then Cheyenne killed Alan for being with this girl. But Debbie is like, no, I never did anything with Alan. We were friends. But I love Cheyenne. Like, we have been together for so long. Like, this isn't anything. Like, you're putting this, like, you're putting words into our mouth. You're putting love triangle where there's nothing. I'm not going to go into all this shit because the jury was deadlocked. And on November 24th, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was found not guilty of first degree murder, but he was charged with manslaughter in the first degree and was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. Well, the Warrens were convinced that the Catholic Church refused to take the steps needed for the exorcism. And because of that, a life was taken. And so they were like, you know, up in arms about that. And then they were like, also, David's not free of his demons yet. Like, none of this is okay. Nothing is solved here. Mm-hmm. Like, these people might think that they have justice, but n- like, no one has justice right now. So the Warrens actually arranged for the Glatzels to go to Canada and, for a gifted exorcist to help David. Well, he did the whole laying on of hands kind of exorcism. And apparently within 30 minutes, the demon was exorcised. But the demon did identify itself before departing. And it was not 42 demons like they believed, like the old man and his helpers and all of that. It was one And it's known as Beelzebub. Which I think is very interesting that I did this story. And I didn't even know all the ins and outs of this. But Tawny had just sent in a Sinister Sightings that said, like, what the Beelzebub is going on here talking about demons? And if you say their name, do you give them power? Do you take it away? And all of that. But Beelzebub was her reference. And I was just like, oh, shit. But... Okay, so back to David and them. So he was free from his demons finally, but also they learned that they had been cursed. It wasn't just like by chance that David had been possessed, and it was by some friends. And I don't know, like, I don't know what happened or whatever, but it was focused on their two boys, but apparently, because David was. The weaker of the two, it latched onto David, and that's what happened. But it said, synchronicity and all, that the curse had been placed on them the previous winter during their annual trip with these friends on February 16th, which is the exact day that Cheyenne Johnson killed Alan Bono a year later. Coincidence? Mm, well, that... The guy that the Warrens know, he said that it was preordained. He said it didn't matter who it was, someone was going to die that day. And it just so happened to be Alan Bono. Well, Cheyenne only spent five years in prison. He was released early because he was such a good prisoner and like model citizen, all the things. Because again, they say it was so out of character for him to have even done this. Because he was such a good guy. You never would have thought that he was so like such a family guy. He what they all say, it, you know, like you would have never suspected him to do anything like that. Who knows? And Debbie and Wanda to this day say that they did not see him lunge at him at all. You know, who knows? Alan Bono, he had a really bad one from like his stomach to like his heart, like a huge cut. So it wasn't just little like a little stab. do you? was cut. Yeah, it was an attack. Well, so Ed and Lorraine Warren they wrote a book about this. It was made into like a little TV movie thing. I think Andy Griffith played in it. Really? Or something? Let me. I think. Yeah the the demon murder case, uh, and it starred Andy Griffith as Ed Warren and a young Kevin Bacon. As Cheyenne Johnson. I'll be damned. Who knew? Right? Old Matlock. (laughs) Well, and in 2021, new year, something to look forward to, The Conjuring 3 is going to be about this case. Wait, what? Mm Mm-hmm. But now, I will say, because we all know that there is a lot of controversy about the Warrens, Carl Jr., which... Every time I say that, the burger. Yes. Uh huh. I was going to say it related to Hardee's. Right. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm like, God, you know, you a big girl win. Like, uh-huh. hmm. But Carl Jr. and like they have come out and said that that didn't happen and that, you know, denounced the whole thing but you know they had gotten paid back in the day when the book first came out Mm -hmm. and then it got republished like in 2006 and that's when he came out and said like this is all fake like please leave my family alone kind of thing and it kind of painted him in a bad light because they say that he was kind of an angry kid and maybe that the demons like kind of fed on him in a way of making him angry and, like, aggressive and Mm -hmm. all that. So, I mean, doesn't make him look good. And then probably maybe didn't get a cut on the second Mm -hmm. run of it,
1: too. You know, so, who knows? I mean, not saying that... I I mean, I'm not not taking a stance on yay or nay on Ed and Lorraine. Right. I'm just saying everybody got an angle.
0: Right. And... My thing with End and Lorraine, I feel like, well, y'all all know that I love Joe Exotic too. I feel like he has a good heart too, but I feel like they went in with good intentions and then they just sensationalized things too much. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's truth in everything. You just have to weed through like the really big adjectives and the really like jump scares, and there's a the truth with them, but I don't know. But, like, Debbie and Judy, David's mom, mm-hmm. Cheyenne, of course, like, they all say that happened and stuff. You know, I don't I don't know. Yeah. My question to you, do you think the devil could make you do something? And that makes me think of Evil, that show on TV that Creep Mom told me about. Mm-hmm. Because it was like they would influence people. So there is this evil guy, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was like, I want to say like a little lesser demon kind of guy, but he basically made this guy who was an incel in training, but like would have never done anything, like, want to shoot up like an all-women's like uh, workout facility thing. You know what I mean? Mm Because it was like, he had got him to that point, and he was supposed to be a therapist. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so it's like, no, I really do believe people are like that. I mean, I don't know. But so it's like, but is there, is it just because people are bad or is there an influence beyond our, like, knowledge behind that? I don't know because, I mean,
1: not everybody even believes in the devil. And not, well, I mean, and some people believe in demons but don't even believe in, like, the devil. And so it's like, can those, can they even be influenced by the devil if they don't even believe in the devil. You know what I mean? And then again, where's free will? I don't, I don't know. I mean, do I want to say no? And then the devil will be like, challenge accepted? Absolutely not. But do I think like the devil himself or herself or itself or, uh, that sounds condescending, kind of but I don't mean it that way. But like.
0: We don't know yeah. what it is.
1: Uh, but like the devil, the devil.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Really, gonna spend time with an 11 year old boy? No. Well, why not?
0: Well, what made this boy so special? Why does it have to be special? Well, why though? But why do you think it has to spend a lot of time? Like, it could have just like sprinkled there and then sprinkled over here. But you know what I'm saying though? Like, I mean, but, but like, but also, like, if you think about supernatural beings, like, and if you want to think about like biblical stuff. Yes. Yeah. But I'm just saying like, but their timeline's not on our timeline. Yeah. I mean, if Santa can get around the world in in one night, uh, Satan can possess multiple little boys. You leave Santa out of this discussion. <laughs> I mean, Santa, Satan, mm, both wear red.
1: It is in their color wheel. <laughs> <laughs> well, y'all tell us what y'all think. We don't know. We don't know the answer. If we did, well, we'd
0: write a book about it.
1: Yeah. We'd be bumping Ed and Lorraine out and we'd be, well, a paranormal chase. <laughs> <laughs> but let us know for sure what you think kindly and respect each other's opinions.
0: Yes, please. Let's all be because, adults.
1: I mean, you're never going to change somebody else's opinion. You literally are just stating your own because. And we
0: want to hear your opinion.
1: Thank y'all so much for all of your support this year. It has been a roller coaster of a year.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: It has been so emotional. We've been through so much with health scares, with... Why are you looking at me? Well, because I tried to die in 2019. You tried to die in 2020. 2021, can we just both live? You just had to kick it up just a little (laughs) bit. I just went to the hospital a couple of times. You had just had to stay.
0: Right? Oh,
1: that bill though. It's been a terrible year, but also an amazing year of growth. I think both for us personally and professionally with the podcast. I don't know. Y'all are so, so amazing. Thank y'all so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting us in so many ways on Patreon by listening every single week to both the main episodes and the Sinister Sightings. We know that y'all are reviewing on the different platforms and so involved on social media, and it means so very much to us. Just know that we read every letter we get, every email, and, well, I mean, unless is a Sinister Sighting because we save them for the actual episodes, and then but we really do read them all. And they mean the world to us. So, thank y'all so, so much for another year of laughter and love and support. We couldn't do it without y'all.
0: Like, literally, we couldn't do it without y'all. True. I mean, we would, but it would be lonely.
1: It would It would literally just be us hanging out.
0: And then she'd kick me out because, like, y'all are my lifelines. Stay around. I've been trying to kick her out for
1: damn 25 years. <laughs> Now that's a fucking sinister sightings.
0: <laughs> Sorry, that
1: laugh reminded me of
0: Heine's laugh.
1: At least twenty twenty gave us no, laugh. No, it's
0: not. No, because she pleases me with that laugh, y'all. <laughs> like she's always, you know how someone can one up you on something. She's always got that. Like I could be a bitch and whatever. She'd be like, Heine, I'm done. <laughs> you right. You won. I don't care what the internet says. You you won. You right. Thank you all for a great year. We're not saying shit about 2021. 2021, it is what it fucking is. Uh-huh.
1: We're not doing any anything. We uh we are is solstice. We are manifesting. Thank you Michael for telling us what to do. We're manifesting and we're
0: lighting candles. Yes, hoping and wishing. But uh I'm not saying anything cuz uh when you have people who start listening and then they hear it, after the year we've had and they're like oh donna wanting to go to france and i'm like the only thing i've had is french fries cool I'm like man 2020 it was a rough one mm-hmm. and they're like y'all we're so hopeful <laughs> not this year we're just it is what it is we are hopeful
1: that 2021 happens <laughs> yes oh my god that yes <laughs> Hmm. that's it and we hope that y'all remember. Creep it real and, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared. Happy New Year.
0: <laughs> what happens? <laughs>